Good morning. Good to, to see you all. And uh, it's, well, we love having the opportunity to worship both inside and outside. It's nice that the, the rains forced us all in together this morning, and it's good to hear uh, one another's voices and to be able to sing uh, together in this way. Um, we're going to be turning to God's Word this morning, and we are, um, as you know, in the season of Advent. This is the third of, of four Sundays in Advent, and I want to talk to you this morning uh, for the second time from Mary's song uh, in Luke chapter 1. So it's not a misprint in your worship guide if you were here last week and thinking, uh, thinking that this morning, uh, but we started looking at Mary's song uh, last week considering Christmas um, as a season of revolution. And this morning we're going to turn to it uh, once again because Chris, it's Christmas, we sing a, a lot at Christmas, there's a lot of caroling and, and worshiping going on, and so I think it'll be good to look at the original uh, Christmas song, if you like. Uh, it's not as catchy as uh, Jingle Bells or, or whatever, Michael Buble, uh, but it is, it is a little bit more profound and a little bit uh, richer in depth and meaning. And so uh, we're going to dig into it a bit further. Uh, we dug into it last week. We'll hopefully uncover some more gold this morning. And really the theme of our message today is worship. Looking at Christmas as a season of worship. And I don't know if you think of it like that, but it, it most certainly is. And so it's appropriate that we consider uh, worship this Advent season. In fact, it's appropriate that we consider worship anyway, because you, may, you maybe don't know this, uh, but worship is good for you. Uh, the social scientists uh, increasingly agree with this. Worship is good for you. In fact, there's all kinds of interesting statistics that are relevant to this. Did you know, for example, that the level of depression that people suffer can be tied uh, to worship? Generally speaking, people are 22% less likely to suffer depression if they regularly attend a place of worship at the weekend. Uh, 22%. That's, that's an interesting statistic. It's from a study that was done at the University of Saskatchewan, which I know sounds made up. Uh, I know it doesn't sound like Harvard or Stanford, but you might just be a pompous snob to think that Saskatchewan is not a real university. It is, okay, so just be careful. Second thing, time management. Apparently, same study suggests that people who are involved in regular worship generally improve their time management. Third thing, grades. Generally speaking, people who are involved in regular worship will improve their academic grades. Fourth thing, and this might sound a bit odd, but mortality. I mean, worshipers still die, but actually, the mortality rate, the life expectancy improves. Uh, a psychological study published by the American psychologist in 2003, a paper entitled Religion and Spirituality, found that, that they're, they're found there to be a link to physical health. And then finally, the University of Chicago published some statistical analysis showing that people generally have better sex lives if they're involved in regular worship. Just saying. USA Today published a piece on it, usatoday.com. Uh, you can look it up if you like, if you don't believe me. Revenge of the Church Lady, the article was called, and I won't go into details, but, but yeah. And so those are some facts about corporate worship. 
But the theme of worship is obviously a lot bigger than that. And this morning I want to get to what is actually most profound about worship. It's not the corporate expression. It's not even the gathering on a Sunday that makes someone a worshiper. I want to talk about what happens inwardly, what happens in the heart, what, what happens in the most sort of hidden sense. And that's where we get to as we look at Mary's song here in Luke chapter 1. And so let's, let's read it once more, and then we'll get into what it has to say to us this morning. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation." He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Amen. So we were just talking about how some of the apparent um, external benefits involve, uh, involve with, with those who engage in external worship. And obviously, there is very much to, we want to encourage external uh, worship in that sense. Do come to church. Come to church regularly. Well done for being here this morning. Well done. Keep coming. Okay? So just to be clear on that. But worship in the Bible is intentionally focused on what happens inwardly. What is less visible on a human level? God sees it. God cares about what happens in the, in the inmost parts. It, it, there, there's a place in the Old Testament where, it, it, where David, he prays this, this prayer of repentance. He's acknowledging his wrong to God for some horrible behavior of his. And he comes to God brokenhearted and sorrowful, and he, and he brings a prayer of great repentance to God. And he says in Psalm 51, let me read the words that he uses. He says, surely you delight in truth in the inward being. You delight in truth in the inward being, in the inmost parts. God's delight, God's concern is in what's going on in the unseen places. And in fact, that's a central, a central emphasis as the Bible goes on. The people who are called prophets in the Old Testament frequently deal with the difference between external worship and genuine internal worship. Uh, you want the two to coexist, but sometimes they don't. And God even says through the prophet Isaiah, he, he, he says, I've come to tire of your festivals. I, I've tired of your meetings, your gatherings. In fact, he goes so far as to say, I hate these things with all of my being. He says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. That's the kind of description God gives of false worship, where our lips show up, but our hearts stay at home. Our hearts are somewhere else. And as far as God's concerned, that's not worship. But when I read Mary's song, she's pretty clear on this. She starts off explaining what worship is rooted in for her. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit. 
spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Mary's saying that the most inward part of me, the core of me, is taken up, is a, is a flame with worship, with wonder, with delight, with excitement, with joy, with desire for the living God. That's what's happened to her. Worship isn't an, act, an activity for her primarily. It's not something that she ticks off a list. It's not something that she does outwardly just to keep people happy. It's something that comes from the very seat of her emotions and desires. It's changed everything for her to coming to contact with God, with the one who has actually physically, literally come to exist within her uterus. The God who's becoming flesh, who's become an embryo within her body. The baby she carries. She's not just got physical space for him in her womb, but her heart, her being on a soul level is transformed. That's true worship. It's a transformation of the soul. It's what we're taken up with. What our desires go back to. What our minds will tend to go back to. What we most ultimately steer our lives by. And it will show. Worship will show. It'll show in a person's decisions about other things. It'll show in the fact that we clearly don't worship other things. That other people expect uh, them to worship. We expect you to worship money. We expect you to worship entertainment and comfort and pleasure and power. We expect you to worship control. That's the thing to worship. But the worshiper is someone who's realized those false gods, they, 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 don't, they don't inflame the heart in the same way. Not anymore. My, my heart's been won over. My, my, my soul is alive with worship. And Mary puts it in those kinds of terms. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. And she is worshiping in the sense that she's responding. And this is an important point to make. Mary is responding to something that she's seen. Mary's responding to something that she's come to know. Something has, has been revealed to her, and her worship is a response. And worship is that way around. Worship is not, at its heart, an activity of ours. Worship, at its heart, is a response to an activity of God's. It starts with Him. It starts with His work, His revealing of Himself to, to the man or to the woman, to the, to the point where there's, a, almost, there's an almost sort of automatic follow-on. He reveals himself, and my response of wonder is the worship that I bring. We come and express our worship to God as a completion of the joy that we are involved with that he has re- as he has revealed his goodness to us. And it's important for so many reasons to see that, that worship is a response to revelation. Because otherwise it becomes something potentially dangerous potentially almost oppressive to us. I mean, telling somebody to worship, go and worship. Think what you're saying when you, when you, you, you confront someone with the command, with that imperative, with that demand, worship now, go. It's like, it's like you know, love that person now. Go do it now, love them. Now, the Bible does command us to love the Lord and to love our neighbor as ourselves, so it's not wrong necessarily. The command is true. 
But the command, understand purely as a cold command, will actually result in the opposite. Because what the command comes to is a heart that's closed off to God by sin, by our own selfishness and false worship and replacement gods that we've put up in the kind of mental temples of our lives. And the command to worship God comes in as a kind of demand upon us, which we... you know, we, we feel not particularly warm to, but we know we ought to. I ought to worship God. I don't feel like it, but I ought to. And so we, we, so we, we start to say, oh, all right, I'll worship God. And we do various external rituals or whatever. We do stuff even when our hearts are cold. And what happens? Usually our hearts grow colder still. Our hearts grow hardened because the law on its own doesn't create love for God. The law on its own doesn't, it will will actually make us be more likely to create hatred for God. You just tell someone just to, to, to love God better, if that's all you say to them, you're creating, what you're creating is a hater of God. Because worship doesn't work like that. It's a response to a revelation of how worthy of worship God is. When you truly see him, when you really grasp and glimpse his goodness and his greatness, the response of worship comes from a heart that's been liberated from law and rules and delighted to offer praise. It's the obvious and natural thing to do. And we need to get that right or our worship will become hollow or something worse. We, we, we need to see that it's a response to revelation. We need to, to, to see something of what Mary has seen, and, and, and she has seen it. I mean, if you read Mary's song, it's rich. You can count over a, a dozen different attributes of God that are described subtly in the way it's written. It's rich, and it bears our time and our reflection. She, she's this poor, uneducated peasant girl, a nothing person from a nowhere place. But she's seen the goodness of God, and worship flows out of her. And it's so important for us to understand that worship does not come from Mary or anybody else naturally. It doesn't matter how educated we are. You could put Mary in the University of Saskatchewan and she'd still be completely clueless about what real worship is unless, unless the Holy Spirit reveals the goodness of God. And the truth is that's exactly what's happened. And in fact, if you go through Luke's description of the Christmas story, you'll notice that the Holy Spirit's all over the place. How will this be? The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The Almighty will overshadow you. Shadow you. The, the Holy Spirit is involved on page after page after page in Luke's gospel. Luke's keen on you knowing that. The Holy Spirit has to be involved or worship is frankly impossible. And if you want proof, this is what, this is what Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2. He, 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 says, he says this, No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. He's saying here, human beings do not get God. Human beings, without help, we do not get it. We can't worship what we don't know. 
How can you worship someone you don't know? He carries on. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received Not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Now follow me. I know this is a bit of a a dense bit of the Bible that I'm reading to you, but it is so important to understand real worship. The natural person does not accept. Do you understand this? The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one, for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. What Paul is saying is effectively the world is divided into two groups. Those who by the Holy Spirit have been given the gift of seeing why God is worthy of worshiping and the rest. Who it doesn't matter how many times you say to them, now let's praise God and sing louder, they won't really be worshiping. They'll be doing something external, but it won't be worship. And we need the Holy Spirit to come and as you look at Luke's story, he keeps showing how the Spirit shows up to enliven and awaken people to the greatness and goodness of God. And it's also worth saying, even just as an aside, that Mary is a worshiper by, the, the, by virtue of the fact that, she, that the Spirit has something to connect with. I mean, she's a, she's a peasant girl, and she's probably from an illiterate community, But she goes to the synagogue, I reckon. She goes to hear the scriptures read every week. And I'm I'm sure you can tell, even from the way that she's written this song, that she knows the scriptures and she loves the scriptures. And so when the spirit, when the ignition, when when the flame comes down, there are logs on the fire. And if you never read the Bible because it's boring, when the spirit comes upon you, the fire will go out really quickly. But if you read the Bible a lot, drink it in, dig deep, understand it, get to know the story, get to know the pages, the people, the things that they say, when the Spirit comes upon you, you'll start having a roaring fire. Because we need the Spirit and the Word. We need, we need to be alive with, with something that's robust and substantial. Put some big logs on the fire. Get into this book. Get into the, the story that, that comes alive by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, having said all of that, why is worship so important in our lives? Well, let's look at at, at Mary. Mary, why are we noticing her as a worshiper? Why is worship such a value for her? Well, I think it's how she's finding her peace. The truth is that she's being invited into a dangerous life, right? I mean, she's been told, you're with child. Everyone will know that you're not yet married. Everyone will know that you're pregnant. And everyone will question it. So you're going to go 
into a world where people will, will look at you differently. There'll be shame attached to you, especially in the culture in which she lived. Even danger. You're going to watch your son grow up and be misunderstood again and again. You're going to misunderstand him yourself. And there'll come a time, as Simeon said to her later on in Luke's gospel, when a sword shall pierce your heart also, Mary. Mary will watch as her son is taken away and tortured and mocked and abused and crucified. Mary will watch with horror. And she's got all of these things before her, and yet there's genuine delight in her. Her words are hope and joy-filled. She's not singing a lamentation. I would be, I mean, this would be a miserable song if I was given this calling. But her song is, is all joy, is all hope. Because she's learning to find peace through worship. She's learning how to settle her heart by being a worshiper. She's learning specifically to magnify the right things. It's where we get the word magnificat, the the name for the song. My soul magnifies the Lord. Magnify. What does that mean? Well, we have a big clue in the magnifying glass. What does a magnifying glass do? It makes things bigger, or at least look bigger. Can we make God bigger? I've come to magnify the Lord because he's, you know, because God's small and I need to make him bigger. No, you can't make God bigger. But you can make God smaller in your imagination if you're not careful. And you can make God bigger in your imagination. That much is, is kind of up to you. Here's where the will does come in. Here's where you do have a part to play. Because you will magnify something. I mean, you can't help it. It's what we're like. It's how, we're, how we are created. We, we don't just handle data, do we? we we're, we're not calculators and computers and robots. We, we don't just handle raw data. We put the data together with stories and interpretations. We give it meaning. We give it meaning on the, the basis of our imagination. We imagine a narrative. We imagine something And our imagination will shape the way we respond to life all the time. How greatly have you imagined the God of the Bible? Have you in your imagination allowed him to become dull? I tell you, if that's the case, it is the cause of more of your problems than you could possibly know. If the God of the Bible has become small in your imagination, and frankly, hasn't he in all of ours? That's my story. The smaller he becomes in my imagination, frankly, the unhappier I am, the less generous I am, the less forgiving I am, the more selfish I am. The greater he is in my imagination, the freer I am. So we need to be like, God, help me to see and consider and behold you and your greatness. Let me magnify you. Let me make it a habit, a daily habit to take time to magnify you. I mean, it's like going, it's like going to the dentist. You, I mean, you, you know you will retract. You will. By default, you will go back to having a slim imagination of God. Just like when the dentist says to me, open wide. And then she says it again 30 seconds later, open wide. Why? Because I just don't. I open my mouth wide so she can see my teeth, but I, but I can't actually do it for that long because the muscles start to, to retract and the muscles can't stretch for that long. So, so I need her to say, say ah. 
And that's kind of what a worship leader's job is. That's, what, that's, what, that's the job Mike and I have. When we say, let's sing, what, you know, and we're like, well, I don't really feel like it. We're saying, say ah. You know, who do you magnify? Look at the words on the screen. Look at, look at our God. Behold him. Magnify him with me. Keep your mouth open wide. Let's sing. Let's lift our voices. Let's, let's see the truth as it really is. Let's get our imaginations wrapped around the data. Let's see it as we should. Let's let it lift our hearts and souls as we magnify together. And Mary's drawing out a few things specifically that she sees worthy of magnifying. And there's loads here, but I'll just pick out two or three uh, before we finish, just just to feed us today. So she draws out her magnifying glass, if you like, And sees the attentiveness of God. The attentiveness of God. I love this. Verse 48. He has looked on the humble estate of his servant. He's looked. He saw me. He knows me. He is attentive to me. He's heard of me. Ever thought about this? I tell you, you must. It's very important. Because this is our story. If we know Jesus, we can say this like Mary, he knows me. He knows me. I tell you, it's very important to be able to say that. Just being told, as many of us have been all our life, God loves you, it becomes a bit plastic, I think. It's kind of bumper sticker stuff, isn't it? Smiley face, God loves you. It starts to sound a bit dull. It bounces off of me. God loves you. But to know that he knows me takes my breath away. He knows me. He knows me through and through. And he really does. This is, this is the special privilege of those who are his children. Paul, again, going back to, to one, uh, 1 Corinthians, makes this point in, in chapter 8 of, of 1 Corinthians and, and verses 2 and 3. He, 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 he says this, If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, and you expect him to say he knows, but Paul doesn't say that, he says he is known by God. If anyone imagines that he, that he knows something, and we're full of it, aren't we? You know, I know this. I mean, I've been to the University of Saskatchewan. I know. And Paul says, you don't know. You don't, honestly. You're building your life on your great knowledge of things. The most important thing, ultimately, is not what you know. It's who knows you. If anyone loves God, if the, the revelation of his goodness has caused a love to spark, any spark, just a, just, a, just a spark, the tiniest you know, kindling of a flame of love for him, you might say, well, I don't love him very much. My friend, just remember his love for you. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave his son for us. And when, when, when we see that, surely love for him begins to flicker. And Paul quickly jumps in and says, if anyone loves God, he's known, she's known by God. You're known by him. And it's one of the great open wounds of humanity to to feel unknown, isn't it? To go through life. You can go through a marriage feeling like no one knows you. 
My spouse, my husband or wife, even they don't really know me. They don't seem to want to. You can go through family. My parents don't really know me. No one's ever really wanted to know me. You can feel lonely in a crowd, feel lonely in a workplace, in a school or a college, in a church, frankly. There's no perfect church. There's no perfect marriage. There are always going to be times where you feel a bit unknown, not being known, not being listened to, not being understood, not being heard. Have you ever felt like that? Isaiah knows about it. He says, my, my, my way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. So it's horrible to feel like that, that God doesn't care and doesn't know. But Mary sees something blissfully wonderful. He's looked upon my humble estate. He saw me in my nothingness, just a peasant girl. He knows me. He knows me. Friend, this morning, he knows you. He knows you. It's a wonder, but it's true. And the second thing she sees is that he's gracious. He's so gracious. And that's good to know because he knows you, right? Because some of us, you know, we're a bit terrified at the thought. And, and the more I say that he knows me, the more, the more we're thinking, I don't want him to. I mean, everything I know about me is not, is not pleasant, so I don't want him to know about me. The more I find out about myself, the more I don't like it. I don't like what I know. But she says in verse 47, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, my Savior. And she says, for behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed, blessed. They said in various times in church history that she is full of grace, Mary, full of grace. That's the title given her based upon an incorrect Latin translation, full of grace. But Mary knows better than that. She doesn't get chosen to be the mother of Jesus because she's full of grace. The angel didn't say, ah, Mary, so impressive. Do you mind applying for the job? No, no. The Lord found her in her sin. That's why she calls him her Savior, right? That's what we need, a Savior. Jesus has come to save us from our sin. The worst thing about you, he knows, all, he knows them all, and, and, and he is gracious. He's full of favor. He's full of love. He's full of blessing. Those, those are the very things that caused him to come on his rescue mission. He sees you in your worst, and he's full of compassion. We don't deserve it, but that's the whole deal. He's gracious. And Mary sees that. And thirdly, she sees him as sovereign. Very quickly, verses 54 and 55, he's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Now, I know that this is the hardest thing to ever preach to 21st century people because we're convinced that any true answer out there uh, any you know, great truth must mainly be about me, right? And the Bible, presumably, if it's any good, is about me. If this, this book, if it's worth my time, and it's always at this, you know, this end of the year, as we get on in the next couple of weeks, when we start saying, oh, 2022, are you going to read your Bible? Let's all read our Bibles. Let's go through the Bibles this year. And, and, and if you, you think, yeah, I'm going yeah, to give it a go. But, but, by, but by about page 50, you start thinking, this book isn't about me. 
By page 50, it's still mostly about people who lived a long time ago with huge beards and big boats and strange death and bizarre family behavior. And what's this got to do with me? Enough. I've had enough because it's not about me. And and, and where we got this particular notion from as 21st century people, people who lived a long time ago, I'll tell you, they didn't have this problem so much. This is a bit of a, a cultural thing this is for us, that we assume that if it isn't about our individual peculiar bubble situation, it's irrelevant. And that's where we need to get off our high horse, humble ourselves and say, this book is valuable because it's about something greater than me. It's about a story. It's about people like Abraham. Who's Abraham? What's the big deal with Abraham? Abraham is very important to you. Believe it or not, he is. And you think, well, how? Well, read this book and find out. I'm not telling you. Read this book. Find out for yourself. Read it. Think about this story the way Mary does. This is why her heart is aflame with excitement, because she's seeing an incredible epic story reaching its fulfillment. Mary's seeing the, this whole thing as a great story, and it's glorious and mind-blowing and worth our wonder in itself. And the extraordinary thing is, in a strange and totally unexpected backdoor way, it is about you. It's incredibly about you. It's truly about you, but not the way you think it is. But start with letting the Bible be the Bible. Let God speak. Let the Bible be his story and find your story in his greater story. That's what Mary's doing. And she says, she's saying at the very close, she's saying who this is for, who this great Savior that's come into the world is for. Because some people don't get what she's rejoicing about. She says the rich and the powerful, they're not part of it. She says in verse 52, he's exalted those of humble estate and he's filled the hungry with good things. Who is this for? It's for the hungry. For the humble. You hungry? That's how she is. He saw me and he saw me in my humble estate, she says. She's not impressed with herself. The people who believe in themselves, they're they're the ones, she says, who get sent away empty. That's what she's saying. Jesus didn't come to people who say, no, I don't don't need that. I've I've got what it takes. I can can make 2022 fly. I'm going to make it count, and and I've got what it takes, and I'm going to release the giant within me. She, She said it isn't for those people. This is for the hungry and the humble, the ones who've given up on themselves, who say, I haven't got it. I've, I've, I've blown it here. I can't do it. I've failed. I need a Savior. Is that you? Well, I've got good news for you. Jesus came for you, the one who thinks, I've come to the end of myself. You need to be humble. You need to be not impressed with yourself. Don't come to him claiming a thing. Don't, don't come with anything to prove. Come as a desperate, humble, hungry beggar at his table and see what happens. You will be filled with good things. Good things. Imagine the Christmas table. Good things. Jesus came to give good things to the hungry. And if you've, if you've come to that place where you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, come to his table today. Take bread, 
Take wine, feed on Jesus, feed on him. He brings good things to you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We need him so much. We do need him. And we pray, Lord, that over the remaining weeks of this Advent season, that you would teach us where our true mercies are. Teach us to delight in the best of foods. Lord, we, we don't want to spend our money on that which does not satisfy. We want to feed on Jesus. Teach us how to do that, we pray. And by the help of your Holy Spirit, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.